This whole summer, we've been in a series called Tapestry. We have been considering various different biblical themes or threads that are woven together and that create the one story of God about redemption through the promised Messiah. And so my, my heart, my prayer has been that we will have a church that just sees the stunning glory of God in his word and that we would just be in awe and just marvel at the Bible. And so today we're going to look at the biblical thread from beginning to end of the Bible of promise. And like we're told in the book of Hebrews that we can hold fast without wavering because he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just bow before you. We just want to behold you. Behold your beauty, your glory, just how absolutely stunningly beautiful and wise and good, merciful that you are. And we come here together as your people gathered in your name for your purpose. And we are broken. And we are promise breakers. But you are the promise keeper. And all your promises are yes in Jesus. And so this morning, Father, as we approach you, we ask that your spirit be so heavy in this place that we would sense your spirit's work and that we would walk out of this place transformed, that we would walk out different, that we would walk out believing your promises and having a hope that is unwavering, that leads in our lives displaying your character and your glory. And we want it for your praise, for you are bringing many sons and daughters to glory, and we are here to feed our souls from your word. So we ask you, Spirit, to move in this place. We praise you. For you alone are worthy of our praise. Jesus, we pray in your name for your kingdom come. Amen. So if you begin to just think about our lives and this idea of promise, so much of how we live is just patterned around this desire, this understanding that promises are meant to be kept. So if you were married, then you made a promise before the love of your life, and you should love Jesus more. But other than Jesus, you should treasure no one more than your husband or your wife. And so you're standing there with, with this precious gift from God, and you made some promises before God, before a pastor, before your closest friends and family and church, and you promised that for better or worse, that you would not leave. And you heard in today's story how, how Holly and Tristan committed, we're going to focus on God and we're not going to leave. We will keep our promise because our God has promised to us and keeps his promises. And so much of who we are is built around making promises. I mean, just think about it. You say, oh, I'll, I'll see you at six. That's a promise. 
Or you, or you say, hey, let's, let's meet at such and such location. Well, you're making a commitment to go be there. If you say, oh, I'll pray for you. Like that's something that, that means something. So if you're not going to pray, don't say it. Just say, God bless you. Or say, I was balked this week because I sometimes say blessings. Or in my email, I'll say, you know, blessings, Pastor Matthew. And I got mocked for being so cliche and so pastoral. But I'm just saying, you just wish someone blessings. Don't say, I'll pray for you unless you're going to. It's, it's a promise. You should keep your word. There's so many ways that, I mean, even just think in your normal daily life, when you have a, a car payment or your mortgage or your cable bill, like these are commitments. These are promises that you gave your word to make X payments for X long. Like this matters. We ought to be people of our word because our God is a God of his word who always keeps his promises. And if you've never thought about it this way, the only creature that can make promises is a human being. And so the ability to pledge oneself is a distinctly human ability because we are made in the image of God. It is an image of God reflecting ability to make a promise, to give you a word, to pledge yourself, to make a commitment. It, it flows from being an image bearer of God. I love my little 11-pound schnauzer. Like, she's amazing. I love Gracie. But she can't make promises. She, she can't. She's a dog. And yet the beauty is, as human beings, we can. And so much about our lives is making promises and then waiting on promises to be fulfilled. And, and if I'm honest, and I think we all know this, suffering when promises are broken. So much of our lives, just if you think about the pain that you've had in your life, the, the deepest sorrows in your life, I promise you they're because of a relationship. And if I were to wager, not that I'm a betting man, but if I were, I would, I would bet significant money that, that that heartache has come from empty promises, from promises, from expectations that you hoped for and promises that were not kept. That just leads to so much devastation, sometimes even years Later, And so some of you in this room or watching online are hurting. And you're hurting because you have been on the receiving end of broken promises. And what we need today is a fresh word from our Lord. Because the Bible is the story of God's promise. One of these themes is a God who makes promises and always keeps them. And so you are part of a story, a story that is cosmic and eternal and beautiful. You're part of a good story. You're part of a story where promises made to you are always kept and where you can have hope and you can trust. This is the story of God. And so let's look at three specific truths from the Bible about this promise-making promise-keeping God. And so number one, let's look at God's promise. Let's identify the 
promise that God has made. Now, I know oftentimes we talk about the promises as in plural, like all the promises of God. So if you do a Google search for how many promises are in the Bible, it it depends on how you're looking at this, but there are thousands, and some scholars think that the way that they're looking at it, there's over 8,000 promises that God specifically gives, and so there are literally thousands, like almost every page of the Bible has in some shape, manner, or form a promise from God. But today, I don't want to focus on the promises of God. I want to focus on the promise of God. Because all of God's promise, all these thousands of promises, all flow from one. One singular promise that all others are connected to and flow or emanate from. So the Bible is the story of the promise of God and how he has kept that promise to his people and how that completely transforms our lives. So like we have done every week in this series, we're going to page one. We're going to Genesis And you see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you see God has created Adam and Eve, and they're enjoying life in the garden, and everything is good. They're enjoying the purpose of God. They're enjoying the blessings of God. They're enjoying the very presence of God. We talked about this all series long. We're not going to review all of that. It can go back on our website into the archive summaries if you want to, but the point is that it was blessing. It was God living right there with his people. And then in Genesis chapter 3, what you see is the fall. What you see is Adam and Eve saying, we're done with God. We don't want God's blessings. We don't want God's promise. We don't want God's presence. They were done with God. They lost their taste for God. They rejected him. And so you get to Genesis chapter 3. And then verses 14 through 24, what you see is God bringing evil rebels to justice. Now, we might not think of it in those terms, but that is what you're seeing. A good and holy God who is moved to love and to bless is now holding evil, corrupted, rebellious sinners accountable and bringing them to justice. A deserved judgment is what you see in Genesis 3, 14 through 24. Again, we talked about this weeks ago with the, with the theme of kingdom of God. They were trying to literally overthrow the king. This was a coup. And the king doesn't respond well to rebels that want to unseat him from his throne. And so this is deserved judgment for polluting his sanctuary. And so they are corrupted, and they are sinful, and they are cursed. That is what you see with humanity in Genesis 3. Now, in chapter 3, verse 14, you see first God curses the serpent, because the serpent is who led Adam and Eve to revolt, to rebel against God in the first place. And so he promises judgment upon the serpent. And then you get to verse 15. Let's read that. Here's what God says after he's pronouncing curses. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent here. 
So I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So what you're seeing here in this verse is humanity is now enslaved in the kingdom of darkness, in Satan's domain, and God's original promise here, this, here's the first promise that we see in the Bible, is that God is going to create opposition between God's people and Satan. So God is promising a cosmic war. Saying this is going to happen. There's going to be enmity. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be fighting between you, humanity, and with this, this serpent's seed, those that follow Satan. But then God promises that one day, an offspring, a seed, a son, will be born. And that this son who was born of a woman, so fully human, that this son, born of a woman, will battle the enemy. And that, yes, the serpent is going to strike at the son. So it says here, bruise his heel, as in he's going to be injured. He's going to suffer, but the serpent will receive a fatal blow and have his head crushed. And that this promised son will lift the curse, and he will bring God's people back into the garden, into the presence of God to remove our sin. There's a lot that's embedded in this verse. This verse is oftentimes called the proto-evangelium. You're like, what does that mean? Well, you know what proto means, like prototype. It just means the original, the, the first of its kind. And so proto means first. And Evangelium refers to the gospel. So evangelism means sharing the gospel. So being an evangelical, someone that is gospel-centered. And so what you're talking about with the proto-evangelium, it's the first gospel. It's the first mention of the good news of salvation through the promised Son, the Messiah. You're already seeing the gospel in chapter 3 of Genesis. There is a promise of mercy. Humanity at this point does not deserve anything except the judgment of God. And in this passage of judgment, you have a promise of hope and of mercy. And Adam and Eve did exactly nothing to deserve it. They didn't earn it. They did nothing to merit God's mercy. But that makes sense because the very nature of mercy for it to actually be mercy is that it could rightfully be withheld. Because by its very definition, mercy is when you receive a blessing when what you deserve is a curse. Condemnation. And so what you're seeing here is very early on the promise of mercy. And what's so beautiful is that God here is promising reconciliation. He is promising a restoration of our purpose. He is promising freedom from bondage to the serpent's control. He is promising the gospel. 
And what's so amazing is that this promise of mercy and of freedom and reconciliation, this promise is focused on a person. And so this promise is completely centered on, focused on a person who is the Messiah. And you see this original promise played out, unfolding throughout the entire Old Testament. Let's look through it rather briefly, like we've done every week. Adam and Eve's son, Cain, killed Abel. So there you see Satan's seed, Satan's power and authority with with Cain killing Abel. And yet you see God is preserving his promise to bring Messiah and to bring mercy and freedom. So he preserves that through their thirdborn son, Seth. And so it's through Seth's line that you have people who love God and that trust him and believe in this promise. And one of his descendants is called Noah. And so Noah is a direct descendant of Seth. And Noah is who God then used to rescue humanity who were deserving of judgment, and we received mercy. The promise is being maintained. The Messiah's line is still going to come, and so you have all humanity is preserved. Well, many centuries later, the world got terrible again. And you see the world is evil, and God calls a man out of the world named Abraham. First, it's called Abram, then renamed Abraham. But you have this man called Abram. And it's the same original promise from Genesis 3.15. It's just expanded. And how this coming seed, this coming son from Genesis 3.15, now in Genesis 12 with Abraham, it's described that this coming seed will be a blessing to all the families, all the nations, originally all the peoples of the world world. And so it'll be a global blessing. And so now you have the promise that was like seminal form, very basic, with the seed will come. Now in chapter 12, it's expanding, saying, oh, but he's going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And then the story continues, and Abraham's now family is on the verge of dying of a drought. There's a famine. And so his his grandson Jacob, still living in the promised land, would have died along with his 70 family members. And so this family of promise would have died. The serpent would have won. And there would be no Messiah because God's promises would have failed. But what did God do? He sent Joseph to Egypt through much pain and suffering and enslaving and being abused and mistreated. Yes, Joseph suffered, but he did so for a purpose, to preserve the promise of God, because it was through Joseph that the family of promise was preserved, and they, they, were, they did not die in the drought, and they moved to Egypt, where they lived under the safety of Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. 400 years later, they've multiplied to be a mighty nation. 
God's promises are still in line. The people are still preserved. But now there's a new ruler in Egypt who hates God's people, who is being controlled by the very serpent, which incidentally, the ancient Egyptians worshipped serpents. That was part of what they worshipped. They saw them as sacred. Interesting. So, what they do is they take the little boys and they throw them into the Nile. This is demonic. The killing of children is what it is, and it is demonic. It is evil. It is the current ruler of this age that wants to destroy image bearers of God and wanted to prevent the promise from being fulfilled. So he wanted to kill the babies and destroy Israel, but God raised a deliverer, a boy who was saved by the way in the waters of the Nile, Moses, who grows up, and through him, God delivers his people and maintains his promise. And then through Joshua, they conquer the promised land. And then many years later, you have David, who is now ruling in, in the land of promise under the authority of God, and it seems like Okay, things are going really well, and David is defeating all the enemies. It seems like he is fulfilling the promise of Genesis 3.15 of defeating the enemy. And you see this promise now expanded further. We looked at this when we looked at kingdom a few weeks ago. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the expansion. So you have this promised son who will bless the nations. And now with David, you see, oh, and he's going to be the king who will reign forever. And if you keep going, you see in chapter, well, in Daniel, the prophet, that he's, he's going to be a son of man. And there's more expansions, but our time is going to run out. But this, this promise of the Messiah continues. the same promise, but it keeps expanding. And now we're getting a clearer picture of who exactly is coming. And this promised seed, this promised son, is going to be a king over God's people. David dies. He could not defeat the serpent. His son Solomon, we saw this last week, full of wisdom, but he was more foolish, and he led Israel to sin. And when Solomon died, what happened? The nation was torn in two. There was a civil war. And the northern ten tribes of Israel, which were the 12 sons of Jacob, the northern ten tribes become the northern kingdom of Israel. And the southern tribe of Judah, which remember from talking about kingdom, the Messiah was promised to come from the tribe of Judah. And along with Judah, you had the tribe of Benjamin that joined them. So you had two tribes in the south, known as the kingdom of Judah, ten tribes in the north, known as the northern kingdom of Israel. And they had separate kingdoms. And what happened in 722 B.C.? is the Assyrians came and destroyed the northern kingdom of, of Israel, took them to exile to modern-day Iraq, and those ten tribes never came back. You may have heard of it described as the lost tribes of Israel. That's what happened. They never returned. They were completely extinguished and forced to intermarry, and, and that's where you get Samaritans. That's a whole different conversation for a different day, more of the history but that's what happened to Israel. 
The southern kingdom did a little bit better, but not much. In 586 BC, the nation of Babylon came in and steamrolled Jerusalem, destroyed the walls, burned down the city, demolished the temple, and took survivors into exile into modern-day Iraq in Babylon. But God was faithful. And 70 years later, he restored Judah back to the promised land because God had a promise to keep. And he had already promised to be through Judah. He had a promise that the Messiah, the seed, would defeat the enemy and bring us into freedom, into his presence. And so he restored his people back. And so what you had was all of these prophets, and I won't go through all of them. I will list them for you. But if you read in the Old Testament, there are these prophets that prophesied before the exile to Babylon. Sometimes they're called the pre-exilic prophets. You're like, what does that mean? Pre-exile. That's all that means. Pre-586 BC. Before Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, you had the prophets that were preaching about repentance and about God's glory and sharing God's word with his people. And the prophets were Obadiah and Joel, Amos, Hosea, Jonah, Micah, Isaiah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah, who also wrote Lamentations. So all of those were the prophets that were pre-exiled that were preaching this repentance, and yet, no. Jeremiah was the last one that said, it's too late. Judgment is coming and is here. And you want your heart to break? Read Lamentations. It is, it's hard to read because it describes what was happening when, when Jerusalem was um, under siege, so surrounded by the enemy. And what happened and what, what mothers of young children had to do to survive. It, read it. I don't want to share it because there's children in the room. And I don't want them to get nightmares. I'm not even kidding. I'm serious. It's very painful. It was horrific what was happening. And it was, it was judgment. And in the middle of this judgment of God, deserved judgment, God still had a promise of mercy. So what does he do? He continues in this storyline. He brings back his people, and we get then to the New Testament where there is a baby who is born in a stable, who is the seed of the woman, the promised Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of man who will come and fulfill all of God's promises is all about Jesus. And so let's talk, number two here, about God's promise fulfilled. So that is the very overview storyline of God who made a promise to bring mercy and redemption to his people who continue to rebel. And the Old Testament ends with this sense of being incomplete. Because all of these different prophets that I just kind of listed, they talk about God's deserves judgment, but also his promise to bring mercy. 
And so we see that in the person of Jesus with God's plan being completely unfolded, Matthew chapter 1. So the first page of the New Testament, Matthew 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So this is an angel speaking to Joseph. And says, she, being Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. By the way, the name Jesus is English word. In the Greek, it was transliteration of the Hebrew Yeshua or Joshua, which means the Lord saves. And so he is called Jesus because that's what his name means, the Lord saves. So you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill, there's the key, to fulfill what the Lord hath spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Fulfilling the promises of God. And so this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where God promised that a virgin would conceive and show the miraculous conception of this seed of the woman who was fully human and yet conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he is fully man and fully human. So Jesus had both natures. It, it, it boggles the mind, but this is what we believe taught from the Bible is that Jesus is God in the flesh, as we just read, Emmanuel, which means God with us, fulfilling the promise of God. And then if you turn a few pages over to Luke chapter 4, you see Jesus who's now an adult and he's in a synagogue and he is reading. And this is amazing. So Luke 14, I mean Luke 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He was reading from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He's in the synagogue. He gets up, and he reads Isaiah, Old Testament prophet. And then, verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and all and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth they said is this not joseph's son 
I mean, there were no mics back then. But if there were, this would have been the mic drop moment for Jesus, where he, he's up there, and he reads from an Old Testament prophet, and then he's like, he like wrecks them, and he says, this is pointing to me. You have just heard the fulfillment of Isaiah. Right now, in your hearing, it's all about me. And you can't just imagine, they're just like, stunned. But Jesus was speaking truth because Jesus could have read from Isaiah 53, where it says that the Messiah says was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He could have read that too. Because it also points to Jesus. It points to the gospel. All of God's promise, everything is fulfilled in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And it's all about defeating the enemy and bringing sons and daughters to glory. And as we just read from Isaiah 6 and 1, freeing captives, freeing the oppressed, liberating them from the kingdom of darkness, which is why in Romans 16, 20, it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Jesus will crush Satan under our feet. Where do you think this language is coming from in the book of Romans? It kind of sounds like Genesis 3:15. It's kind of like it's almost like the Bible is one story. It's almost like God had a plan. And it seems to me as though this isn't like a bunch of disconnected stories. It seems to me that we have a God who has a plan and a purpose and made a promise. And he has been working all of it out to send the Messiah who would bring freedom to captives and to give us his spirit and to crush the enemy and to bring many sons and daughters to glory. This is the God that we worship. May we be in awe. Some of you, this, this amazing book inspired by God himself is just covered in dust until the next Sunday morning. And I'm just... I don't, I don't get it. Like, why? My prayer throughout this series has been that you would see the Bible as God's interwoven masterpiece. That you would see how amazing the word of God is because he who spoke it is amazing. And we can see the end of where the story is going. This is our future. Revelation chapter 12 Beginning to end, Revelation 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the, that ancient serpent. Again, back from Genesis 3. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth 
and his angels were thrown down with him. You see here Satan who is thrown down from earth. And if you keep reading in this chapter, it shows how he is pursuing the son who was born to a woman, Jesus, born to Mary, fulfilled in Genesis chapter 3. And Satan was pursuing, trying to kill Jesus. But of course, we know what happened. King Herod tried to kill all the babies. And again, you see the evil serpent at work in Bethlehem with all the boys being slaughtered. And yet Jesus was preserved and he flees. And the enemy could not destroy him. Try as he might. And then if you keep reading, you see that he got, he was furious. And he says that he goes to make war with all those that belong to Jesus. So turn a few pages in Revelation chapter 20. This enemy who was angry and goes and makes war with the people of Jesus in Revelation 20 Verse 7, it says, When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their number like the sand of the sea. And they marched up to the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The serpent having his head crushed by Messiah. This is what we're seeing from beginning to end. This is the promise of God. It is a promise of mercy to free us, to bring us back into his presence, to give us shalom, as we saw earlier in this series, the peace of God. Number three, as, as we're bringing this plane down for a landing, living in the light of God's promise. And so God's promise brings renewal. So we've seen God's promise. We've seen it fulfilled in Jesus. And thirdly here, let's, let's talk about how the promise brings renewal. How, how what God is doing is he's bringing us into his presence. And so whenever I say that the promise is about Jesus and the promise brings renewal, it's because it is Jesus who brings God's renewal. And we want more of him. And we read this earlier in the gathering, and we will study it in our home groups later this week. And sidebar, if you're not in a home group, you're missing out. Like, that's how we share our lives this is what we're about. So if you just come on a Sunday and kind of sneak out, then maybe you can see what we're about, but you can't taste it, and you won't experience it unless you're in a home group and then in a discipleship group. That's just who we are as a church. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 through 22. Read that again. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. It's all about his glory. So promises of God all through Jesus for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us 
who also has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so we receive his spirit, we are brought near, we are redeemed, we are anointed, we can now glorify God, all because the promise has been fulfilled in Jesus. Let me just give you three thoughts as we wrap up here, just some some points to ponder this week about a God who makes and keeps his promises. The first one is remember this. Remember that God is trustworthy. The story of promise proves it, that he is faithful, and that we, don't, that we can hold on, that, that we don't have to worry or freak out about life because he who has promised is faithful. And so God is trustworthy. And the story of promise proves it that we truly can. But the problem is we get gospel amnesia. That's what happens to us. We get so busy with life, kids, and bills, and oh my gosh, the yard, and it's just life. you, You get caught up and work and you forget. You forget the story that you're living, the story that you're a part of, the story of mercy and God's glory, the story of promise. We forget. We get gospel amnesia. And then let alone add in our trauma and our struggles. And then, oh man, like we just can so easily drift away. So what do you do when life is disappointing? Or what do you do when Man, when you're honestly trying to see the glory of God in a situation, a circumstance, but really all you can see is pain or futility or disappointment or frustration or darkness. You're like, God, I don't see you working in this. What gives? What do you do? You look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You keep looking to Jesus in those hard circumstances. Why? Because we know he who has promised is faithful. And let's just be honest. Let's be real. It's just us, right? Not really just live stream, but. How often, how often do we have our hopes set in the things of this world? Or maybe we would say with our lips that our hope is in Jesus, but really our hopes aren't in Jesus. They're in that job promotion. They're in getting that hot girl. They're in your husband being a better man. Your hopes are really in, you name it, more status, a bigger paycheck. Like our real, our hopes really, if we're really honest, aren't in Jesus. And And then God, because he is merciful, allows us to go through hard things, again, out of mercy, because he wants to reorient our hopes so that we would hope in Jesus. Because if we stay on that path, it's going to lead to so much more pain. And so he allows hard things to refocus and bring us back to the path of life. And like last week, the path of wisdom and the following Jesus that leads to hope and joy and our hopes for real being centered on Jesus. And so when it's hard or confusing, 
Keep looking to Jesus and keep believing that you are defined by his promises and God is trustworthy. The story of promise proves it. Second, remember this. Remember that Satan is not yet defeated. We did read of where he's going. We know how the story ends, but it's not over yet. And so in the meantime, don't forget, if you think that you can live your life thinking that spiritual warfare is not real or Satan is not real or you're, you're acting as though you're living on a golf course when really you're in a war zone. And if you think, if, if we actually think that we can just like go to work and not think about Jesus and not have a passion for him and not have any kind of discipleship and, and just toy with the things of God, and then if we think that we're going to walk in freedom, you just forget it. You will get eaten up by the enemy. Because the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy, 1 Peter 5, that he is a roaring lion seeking whom to devour, and he will eat you up. Unless you're aware of the presence of God in you and his promises, walking in community and, and armoring up and being aware that there is a real enemy. What it says in James 4, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You draw near to God and he will draw near to you and the enemy will flee. Remember, he's alive and well until the end comes. Don't forget the gospel and don't forget that there is a real enemy. And lastly, remember, remember this. Remember that we have work to do. We have a job to do. We have a mission to accomplish. We've received this mercy for the mission. So we have been saved to serve. Don't forget that. You did not receive mercy just for you. You've received it for God's glory, and that you can spread that so that more people can experience the freedom that Jesus read about himself in Isaiah 61. We serve the God of promise, and we are the people of the promise. And so do you want to see what God can do through you? Are you willing to get your hands dirty in people's lives? Because here at Renewal, we don't want to just live a fake, everything is just sanitized, this mask. We all got it all together. No, you don't. None of us got it all together. We need God's mercy, and we need each other. And so if you are ready to be real with God and with your brothers and sisters and get your hands dirty, then you're going to love Renewal Church because that's what we want to be about the people of the promise, the people of Messiah.